So it begins at um, Acts chapter 27 verse 1 and it'll go through to Acts chapter 28 verse 16 and uh, apologies in advance for mispronunciation of, uh, of uh, Italian cities. All right, uh, so let's begin. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adrium Mitum, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Sinaitis. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete, opposite Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens, near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous, because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo, and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbour in Crete facing both, both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, They saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force, called the Northeaster, swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Certus, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. 
you must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognise the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping, but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or, or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta, the islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us into his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and, after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. 
They honoured us in many ways and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian, Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day the south wind came up and on the following day we reached Puteloi. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them and so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming and they travelled as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Lord, your ways are often surprising, and here in your word we find a man, your servant, who's experienced a lot of suffering. Uh, Help us to understand you better so that we might understand how to faithfully live in the face of some of the unexplained things that might happen to each of us. And strengthen our faith. Amen. Horatio Gates Spafford was a lawyer and a property developer in Chicago and a man who, from all reports, was well known for his Christian conviction and his active Christian faith. He was married to Anna. They had five children, a boy and four girls. In 1870, when just four years old, the son, Horatio Jr., died suddenly of scarlet fever. A year later, A massive fire swept through downtown Chicago, devastating the city, leaving around 100,000 people homeless and destroying many properties owned by Horatio. Two years later, now 1873, the Spaffords decided to take a holiday in England where they could go and hear one of their friends, Dwight Moody, preaching. Delayed because of business, Horatio sent his wife and daughters on, aged 11 down to 2. And whilst crossing the Atlantic Ocean by steamship, their vessel was struck by an iron vessel and sank within minutes. All four daughters perished. And remarkably, Anna Spafford survived, found unconscious, floating on a plank of wood. Taken to land, she immediately sent a telegram to her husband, which simply said, saved, alone. Horatio had lost so much in such a short space of time. I cannot imagine what it would be like to experience that level of loss. Perhaps there are some here who could imagine that because of the level of loss that you've experienced in your life. But I would think that most could not even begin to imagine or comprehend that level of loss in such a short time. I cannot imagine the challenge that must have been to Horatio's faith in God, 
the challenge to believe that no matter what, given the circumstances, God's grace was for him in all things. The account that we just heard, read, details what must, uh, well, what must be said is a traumatic journey of the Apostle Paul, a stormy passage en route to Rome. We don't have much time this morning with everything that we've already had to do, so I'm just going to draw out a couple of things for us. Uh, from this long passage, it really does tell its own story, doesn't it? Uh, notice as we move through the story that despite all of the chaos it seems to, that seemed to be around, that Paul stands almost like a beacon of calm and controlled hope. He knows ahead of time what will happen. And so throughout, he's, uh, you hear him speak or warn or direct, uh, giving instructions to those that are around him for those who will listen. In chapter 27, verse 10, you might be able to see that there. The ship's experienced some difficulty. It's been blown off course. It's now late in the season, which means winter is coming. It's going to be perilous to take the ship out to sea. And Paul warns them, Men, I see that our voyage is going to be a disaster. Great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. And Julius the centurion, on the strength of the owner and the, uh, and the captain's advice, disregards what Paul has to say. They set out, a northeaster hits, for days they are blown wherever, battered, and finally, verse 20, they give up all hope of being saved. Can you imagine being in that situation to be able to say, oh, collectively, they've given up all hope of being saved? And at that, Paul stands before them again and he says, Man, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have. Well, you would have spared yourself this damage and this loss. But now I urge you, keep your courage. Because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Now, how is it that Paul knows that? How is it that he can peer into the future and know that, that everything's going to be fine? Well, we're told. Verse 23. An angel appeared to him and told him. And the angel tells Paul three things about his future. He says, don't be afraid, keep up your courage, you're going to need it. Uh, second, you'll stand trial before Caesar in Rome. You will, you will get to Rome. Uh, so, In other words, you're going to get through what's before you. And third, God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. No, Paul, you will be a blessing to those that you are with because those with you will be saved. Now, this is actually the fifth time in Acts that Paul receives a direct word from God. Each time, Paul is told something about what lies ahead before him, which does, I imagine, give him a certain amount of confidence that even within the storm, even within the trials that life have. For him, he knows that God has promised him things that should help him, point him through, help him get through with those things. Now, you could ask, why doesn't God speak to us that, that way today? Well, that would be really helpful, wouldn't it? 
You know, give us that voice, that dream, that vision, that skywriting sign that sort of makes it very clear what it is that we will have in our future. Wouldn't it be great if that was the normal way that God chose to speak to us directly? Pick some medium and there we go. Well, I want to say a couple of things to that. God does speak like that today, quite normally. There are so many testimonies around the world from Christians of Muslim backgrounds who speak of visions and direct words that they have received from Jesus. And across the subcontinent, where I've been several times, I've heard lots of Indians from Hindu backgrounds speak about the way that Jesus has spoken directly to them. In actual fact, that's the reason why they actually took him seriously in the first place, because the vision was so profound for them, the word was so clear to them, that they knew that they had to respond in some particular way. Yet, brothers and sisters, do you realise that God does that for you as well? What we have before us in the Bible is God speaking directly to us. The direct words of God. God's concern is that all may hear and listen. And yet for various reasons, how he will be heard will vary. In the countries where there's no opportunity to touch, let alone read a Bible, like in our Muslim countries, then it is very difficult for folk to hear his words. So why are we surprised of stories when Muslims hear Jesus speaking directly to them? They wouldn't be able to get that benefit from having the word of God in front of them. And in countries where there's little opportunity to hear the words of God, like in many Hindu countries, where there is simply no translation of the Bible into the particular language or dialect they have got, or they have no, no way to afford uh, owning a Bible or having any access to a Bible, then why are we surprised when we hear stories of Hindus who have seen Jesus appear to them? The fact that we each have a readable, physical, understandable, common copy of the Word of God in our hands is an absolutely wonderful privilege. I take it that's one of the reasons why women, Micah, are doing what they're doing in Cambodia, to make sure that the Word of God is put into a language that can be spoken and understood by those in their own language. What a privilege it is for us to have that in our own language so easily accessible. And instead of being a revelation to just one soul at any one time, this is a revelation to all of us together at this time and any time. That's how awesome that is. Why would you trade a one-off vision to one person at any one time for a complete vision, complete word to all of us at any time? So, Paul, armed with a certain knowledge of what is ahead, says to the men he's sailing with, verse 25, keep up your courage, 
For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Keep up your courage, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. I actually think that that is the key verse of this whole section. Of our whole reading today, I think that's the key verse. Keep up your courage, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. And this time the men give regard to Paul's words. And so should we. Have faith in God. His grace is for you in all things. Fourteen nights later, the risk of being run aground now heightens. Some sailors make an attempt to escape from the ship. Paul speaks again, verse 31. Unless these men stay with the ship, they cannot be saved. If they don't stay with Paul, they will be lost. Now, remember your Old Testament? Remember the story of Jonah. God says to Jonah, go to the city of Nineveh and there I want you to preach my word. Jonah goes to sea and goes the other way. So a storm comes up. And the only way the men on the ship will be saved is to get rid of the one who is going against the word of God. And so they throw Jonah overboard so that they might be saved. That is the complete opposite to what you see here with what's going on for Paul, isn't it? God says to Paul, go to Rome to preach my word there. Paul goes, a storm hits, and the only way for the men to be safe is to stay with Paul, to stay with the one who's doing the word of God. Well, the ship runs aground, it's lost. And just as Paul said, every single soul, 276 of them, make it safely to land. And in chapter 28, as we move into chapter 28, the islanders of Malta warmly welcome with unusual kindness. This is the bit of the horror movie where you sit back and you open your eyes and you start breathing freely again. Thank goodness we got through that. Crisis is gone, danger's clear. Cue the calm celebratory music. I can relax. And then suddenly the last twist shocks you. (laughs) Out jumps a snake. There is no good reason to ever like snakes. And latches onto Paul's hand. A cursed man never gets a break. Yet Paul simply, calmly, shakes off the snake into the pot fire. i tell you if that would not be me. <laughs> and continues on with no ill effect while everyone's watching on thinking, wow, this is amazing. They soon proclaim him to be a god. The chief official of the island welcomes him into his home and entertains him. Uh, Notice that the story has had very little regard by now to the Roman authority figures who at the the beginning were making the decisions and now after everything that's gone on, really they're just going along with the flow. 
The official's father is sick. Paul heals, which prompts folk from all around the island to bring their sick to Paul so that they too could be healed. And as a result, Paul is held in such esteem that when they're ready to sail again three months later, all their collective needs were supplied and on to Rome they go. And as he nears his God-given destination, verse 15, Paul thanks God and was encouraged. Isn't that just fantastic? Friends, this tale should encourage us to have faith in God and know that his grace is for you in all things, even when the circumstances are tough. What we've seen over the last few weeks in Acts are many obstacles before Paul. They've been human obstacles, haven't they? Human obstacles where folk have opposed his message, yet despite all of their attempts, that human opposition didn't seem to stop the gospel going out. Today, we see natural obstacles. We see things that no human could organise to put in the way of what it was that Paul was called to do. And yet in Paul we see a servant of the Lord who increasingly stands out as a man of God, even in the face of those natural, unexplained things. Disregarded at first, but through the storms of the life that you see Paul living and those watching, they come to see in him something that needs to be esteemed. They see his faith in God. Can you imagine what those with Paul must have thought witnessing this? You know, a prisoner. Nobody really knows why he's a prisoner. But to then go through this entire journey all the way around through many, many days, only to then land on an island and see the entire island killed of their sicknesses. You must be looking in at Paul and thinking, this, this is remarkable. We see it had an effect on Luke because he writes about it in such detail. We see it has an effect on the islanders, the island official, the prisoners, the guards, the centurion Julius. Now, the sceptics there must have been challenged. The agnostics must have been perplexed. The believers must have been comforted. Now, is that not our story today? In some ways, if you happen to be the sceptic as you come reading the Bible, meeting the Jesus that Paul proclaimed and seeing what God did to care for Paul, his servant, then do you just see this as a far-fetched story? If so, then maybe ask yourself, Why tell this story if it wasn't true? What's the point of telling this story if it wasn't true? And if you're the agnostic, it doesn't matter. just doesn't matter to me. 
then ask yourself, what comforts can you draw on when you are suffering? Because we all suffer. What comforts can you draw on in those times when it really does get very tough? And if you are the believer, well, this gives voice to what you know about God. Take courage. Draw confidence. Know God's comfort, even in the storms of life. This is a passage that wants to comfort us. To say that even in the midst of chaos, burden, doubt, crisis, whatever that might be for you, whenever that might be for you, that God has those of faith covered in grace. This is a passage that wants to comfort because it tells us of what the future holds. The fact that 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 God of grace has secured our future through the sufferings of his son. Who, like Paul, hadn't done anything wrong, but yet suffered to a great deal to ensure that we could be brought to God. But even more than that, as we've heard in communion, that not just that he's done that for us in the past, but that he's coming again to gather us all back together again, to bring us into a heavenly future where there is none of this stuff possibly at risk to damage us in any way at all. That is our eternal hope made possible only by the Lord that Paul preached. You know, over the last few weeks, the applications that have come out of Acts, they've been hard work. They've been fairly direct, haven't they? It's been challenging. We draw them out of the text that's there. We've been asked to stand firm in faith, to know our testimony, to speak our testimony, to defend our faith, to do that boldly. And if you don't know how to do that, then to to get trained in order to be able to do that. There's been a lot of challenging things that have come out of the text in the last few weeks. You know, I'm sort of glad that we got through the trials there. In our passage today, I don't think it's really asking us to go out and do anything. But it is asking us to take courage, to draw confidence, to know God's comfort, even in the storms of life, to know it is well with your soul. Horatio received his wife's message, saved, alone. We've got a message today that's got nothing about being saved alone. 
but it's got a lot about what it is to be saved together. Horatio sets off at once to be reunited with her. It is said that as he sailed over the very spot in the Atlantic Ocean where the ship carrying his family had sunk, the ship's captain brought him up onto the deck and pointed to the map and said, this is the place. Horatio returned to his cabin and he wrote the hymn, It is well with my soul. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Lord and Father, thank you for a hope that you've given us in Jesus. Thank you for hope on display in the Apostle Paul. Thank you for your word that tells us both what to know and what to look forward to. And help us, Father, to take courage, to draw confidence and to know your amazing comfort, no matter what the storms of life might be. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.